Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of Project 259. Today is episode seven, and if I sound a little sick, it is because I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold, so bear with me. I should sound a little better in the episode, just a little more sick for this introduction. Episode seven was absolutely fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and today Alex and I cover a lot of interesting subjects relating to my training. We actually first recap my recent training and a hiccup slash injury I'm going through and kind of go into the details of that and then we go into some specific subjects such as how to not overthink pain but also be rational about what your body is telling you the science of building and losing fitness which was i think my favorite thing we covered that was absolutely fascinating how to handle doubts how to build momentum in ways that don't directly relate to the training itself and so much more today's conversation was absolutely fantastic and uh despite having some unexpected adversity uh i think we made the most of it in making a fire episode and i thoroughly enjoyed it and hope you guys do as well two quick notes for you guys before we hop into it my first note for you is i would greatly appreciate it if you give us a follow a five-star review and share the show with a friend a teammate someone who you think will find value and benefit from it and then my second note for you is that project 259 is presented by final surge final surge in my opinion is the one-stop shop for the relationship between athlete and coach and all of the different dynamics that go into that alex and i have exclusively been using it to write my training build it out as we chase a sub three hour marathon not only do i use final surge but final surge is also used by many of the top high school collegiate and pro teams in the u.s two notes in relation to final surge you guys can see every single run i do by going to finalsurge.com athlete slash the running effect and then also if you're an athlete but don't have a coach and you're training for something final surge has a training plan for every race distance and goal from top coaches around the world and you guys can use code the running effect 10 to get 10 percent off your first training plan purchase with all of those notes aside i hope you all enjoy episode 7 of project 259 alex episode 7 of project 259 how are you doing this evening i'm doing well you're uh you're back in austin after uh some pretty significant travels and big life events uh how are you doing i'm doing fantastic yes back in austin back to the heat uh although it's not over 100 degrees we're slowly inching into the fall weather, which I'm very excited about. And uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, you know this, it's so nice to get back into your routine. Like I love visiting family and whatnot, but there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed after being away for a week or two weeks and, and getting back into your routine. I would uh, mention Jakob Ingebrigtsen because he did some incredible things over the weekend uh, and also mentioned a, the possibility of breaking too, which uh, I texted you about, which was quite funny. But we have many things to cover in today's episode. So Alex, do you just want to get us kicked off where we left off last episode? We recapped in last episode, I think my last training that I had done up until that point was that 400s workout, which went extremely well. You kind of want to recap where we're at today. Yeah, absolutely. So where we were a week ago was we had just done a 16-mile structured long run, uh, had a couple days of recovery, and then we were going to do some 400s on the track, uh, which went quite well. Um, And then basically you were going to pack up and and get ready to go to your brother's wedding, which was later that week. So the schedule was going to deviate from what it normally would look like. Uh, Turns out we had another curveball thrown at us. Um, And so I'll I'll let you dive into that a little bit. We're we're kind of in the midst of a setback right now without uh, necessarily like a fully clear timeline and all the answers. But I think that'll give us a lot of good content to talk about because, I mean, setbacks are part of the sport and, you know, they're they're very inevitable. So why don't you take it away and uh, kind of explain where we're at right now? I will speak from personal experience and then I'll let you speak from 
scientific experience for lack of a better way of phrasing it because guys I uh, texted Alex a video of where the pain was and immediately sends me this long text about what it is and like very impressive I was like man I gotta tell I should have texted you more about my injuries back in high school you could have diagnosed them saved me a trip from the doctor anyway so um, had that structured long run on Saturday Sunday is generally when we take off just a full day of rest I'll generally go for a walk or something just to get some movement in but no running and then Monday I had a six mile run planned in the morning and then a three mile double six mile run was good um, I was very happy with how I recovered from that long run and then that double before that double as we answered a listener question I want to say last episode or two episodes ago People ask, you know, what do I do to recover? And one of the things I mentioned is that I foam roll before every single run. And so in foam rolling before this double, I noticed a little bit of tightness on the right side of my left shin, uh, but didn't think too much of it, just a little tightness and ran through it. Double went well, legs were feeling good, was ready for the 400 workout the next day. And then I had a shakeout on Tuesday morning. Again, the shin kind of felt awkward. I made sure to note it in final surge. I even think I filed a pain and injury report to sound uh, very uh, precise and specific, one of my favorite features on Final Surge, but nothing out of the ordinary, and I generally think I'm very in tune with my body, and I thought this was one of the things that I could potentially run through and it get better as I ran through it, and wasn't necessarily something that you know, I thought I had to take time off immediately like I did with my calf or with my foot earlier on in this build where those injuries were more like pretty bad pain. This would make no sense to hobble through a run. This was more just discomfort. Did that 400 workout, felt good. Splits were amazing. And then um, Wednesday morning, I had a recovery run off of the 400 workout. And that's when I would say it was max discomfort compared to what it was a few days prior, but nothing crazy. But at that point, I think we talked enough on Final Surge to be like, hey, this is maybe something we should take a few days off and just reevaluate. Um, and that's kind of when the discussion happened of what this is. And that's kind of where we're at today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think, you know, where we're at right now is so, so you're feeling the pain kind of on the inside of, of, of your shin there. Um, and from my personal experience, <laughs> to be clear, uh, I don't want to fool any listeners. I do not have any advanced degrees in anatomy or physical therapy or orthopedic surgery. Uh, but I have had, unfortunately, my fair share of injuries and been around a lot of runners who have been hurt. So you kind of just like pick up on the language and, and the presentations. Um, I, I think it's fairly likely um, what you're dealing with right now is, is the fancy word is medial tibial stress syndrome, which is shin splints. And so it's when the, the uh, tissue that kind of um, is adjacent to the tibia on the inside there, it, it gets inflamed and it separates a little bit from the bone. Uh, you get this kind of like pressure, like pain sensation. So from afar, if I were to try to diagnose you, that would be my, uh, my best guess. It's, it's really, it's, it's an overuse injury. Um, and so, you know, we probably crossed that line a little bit. Um, but we were talking offline beforehand and as soon as someone gets injured, it's, it's very easy to start you know, feeling a lot of guilt and blame associated with the decisions that you made and, you know, the, the, the outcome that is, um, that has kind of occurred. Uh, but when we were talking, it's like, you really have to be able to separate the quality of the decisions that you make with the outcome, because if you make good decisions, which I think we realistically, we did, uh, we ran, you know, a good structured 16 mile long run, and we were just tuning up for a pretty standard, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday workout. Um, and we might have just overcooked it a little bit. We might have crossed that line of, you know, the capacity that your 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 tissues can handle. Um, and and that's just a risk that you kind of are taking in a in a in a marathon training block. 
Um, so it's like, okay, if we felt like we made good decisions by a having a sensible progression, which I think we did, if anything, the blame there falls on my shoulders, which is me who's guiding your load. And, and secondly, the bigger question is, you know, did you run through pain for an unreasonable amount of time? And I would say, no, you didn't. You ran through pain for, for two days. If you were to run through this scenario 10 times, maybe six of them, you were to come out in one piece, four of them, uh, you would come out with, with some soreness that actually persisted. So I think you just have to take it all in balance and be like, okay, we've ended up where we are right now. And the only course forward is, um, the, the only course of action is, is to move forward with it. Alex, before we kind of dive into my present reality and some of the things we're doing to hopefully get healthy and back on track, I want to talk about a few features from Final Surge that I've really enjoyed while traveling. One of the big ones for me, I don't, I'm not sure if you want to speak on this or what it's like on your end, is the ability to label my calendar for you to see, to structure training around. So for this Tuesday, Thursday, the Thursday workout was planned. I didn't able, wasn't able to get to it because we ended up cutting my training, but like you were able to see, okay, Dominic's in Ohio from these days. These days are busy for him because I was able to label it all on my end. That's one really cool feature I've enjoyed. And then a second one, and this is kind of 24 seven. I like this feature, but particularly when I'm traveling is just the ability to view training both on my computer, but also on the final surge app on my phone. So I don't have to be on my computer and update every 30 minutes. See when Alex posted a workout, rather I can just open the app on my phone as well as with the messaging. I just get a push notification via email. And, uh, maybe that's something you can talk to. You mentioned earlier on in the series about hood to coast, how you kind of utilize that feature. So from a traveling perspective, as we wrap up my uh, traveling training, what are your thoughts on some of these cool final surge features? Absolutely. I think both have been, you know, really helpful from my perspective. The first one would be visually just designating when you're going to be traveling, because when I'm looking at a training plan, it's just really easy to conceptualize. Okay. This is when you're going to be in Austin. These are the days where we need to factor in travel um, and, and kind of the realities that come with that. And also, you know, when you're in Ohio, you can do things that you can't necessarily do in Texas and, and vice versa. So that was really helpful. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, um, while I was driving through rural Oregon running hood to coast, um, I was still able to follow your training with these push notifications on my phone. So I didn't need to be in front of my computer and I was actually able to make adjustments to, uh, just going in via the app and, um, and, you know, tweaking mileage here and there, um, and, and, uh, tweaking a couple of days when we needed to. So yeah, it's, it's been really helpful. And as I've said from the beginning, just like a very valuable tool in an online coaching relationship, which is what we've got. Let's talk about present day. So I ran Wednesday and then Thursday, we're recording this on Thursday. So today will be like officially one week off. I've done a little bit of cross training as well as I don't even know what the proper terminology would be hopping, jumping. I guess you would describe it as putting a little load on your leg. Can you walk me through and the listeners through kind of the protocol that you've put me on to hopefully stay on track and hopefully uh, not get too far off the path? Sure. Yes. So, um, when you initially have an injury kind of pop up, and we talked about this in episode two, I think the, the first thing to do is to rest, which conveniently happened to coincide with your brother's wedding. So I, I texted you Thursday or Friday. I was like, dude, like, don't like, I don't want to hear from you for 48 hours, 72 hours. Just go enjoy your brother's wedding. Uh, don't think about the sport. Like we got a little something that came up. Just just relax and turn your brain off from, from the running side of things. Um, and then, you know, once we circled back again early this week, it's like, okay, we've, we've kind of given it four days to let that acute pain settle down. Um, but we're not quite ready to start running yet. I think we probably will be soon. And so then the question becomes, all right, um, if you're not actually going out for your daily runs, you need to think about two different considerations. The first is, are you maintaining your engine? 
And the second is, are you maintaining the structural components of your body that, you know, produce force when you run? And so the maintaining the engine really comes down to, are you getting some kind of cardiovascular stimulus? And so cross training, I think is pretty effective. You're working the heart and the lungs, you're working the musculature. Um, and I think that's important. And then the second thing is, um, obviously cross training is something that everybody would do if they're hurt. The second thing is, um, and this is uh, admittedly a little bit of an experiment, but it's based on a lot of the research that I've done on tissue health. Um, the other one is, is a loading protocol. And I've used myself as a guinea pig. I've also given this to um, certain people. Uh, maybe I can't name names. I have to keep it confidential, but some very good runners um, that I happen to know. Uh, and it's been pretty successful so far. So the reality is that when you're hurt, you have like a local tissue that can't withstand load. Um, but the rest of your body, right, the, the Achilles tendon, um, you know, your, your tibia, fibula, your, your femur, all of those things are so adapted to doing high load that when you go from like 100 to zero in a short period of time, all of a sudden they start to like freak out and they're like, wait, what, like what happened to the normal load that you normally put on, you know, my body? And so what I, what I tend to see happen when people come back from injuries is they have the engine intact. They've got the cardiovascular um, ability to kind of power through runs. But a lot of times they don't have the neuromuscular efficiency. They don't have the same responsiveness off the ground. They feel a little bit flat uh, just because they haven't been actually loading the tissues in that ballistic way where you're bouncing off the ground. Um, so in, in some research that I've done, it's become pretty clear that bones, uh, bones, ligaments um, and tendons all respond really, really well to short bouts of loading stimulus. And then they basically get numbed out and they become deaf to further loading after about five to six minutes maybe 10. So basically after you cross that five to six minute threshold, you're taking on a lot more strain and you're getting diminishing returns from kind of how receptive they are to the load. So the protocol that I've developed is like, can we do a very short burst of just some loading stimulus to stay below the point of, of outright pain, but still give those tissues enough of a stimulus to kind of stay awake, stay active, um, and keep kind of growing and maintaining uh, where they're at uh, without you know, stressing the body through like a 45 to 60 minute run, which is what we normally do. So that's kind of the protocol that I designed. And we're going to keep that going until we feel like we're, we're um, ready to run, which I think hopefully should be towards the end of this week, early next week. Yeah, it's been really cool as well, seeing you be able to put that in final surge so I can still see it and utilize the same calendar that I've been using. And I remember, I think it was yesterday or two days ago i genuinely feel this way um <laughs> my only note on the quote-unquote workout or like loading protocol was just like i felt like a football player out there i felt so just absurd in my side yard of my parents house just like jumping up and down cars are passing by i'm like i probably look like such a goofball but okay gotta gotta hit the training as prescribed on final search but it's been cool to have all of my training in one place as well as do something new do maybe a little bit of training from a different sport never saying I've played football before or claiming that I know what the training is like. But all I can say is from my uh, ignorant perspective, I felt like a football player out there. So that was, that was kind of funny. But um, Alex, with all of those notes aside, as I was a, a little down bad, admittedly, uh, I think we all are like two days into an injury. I just kind of had some thoughts percolating on my mind that I knew you could answer, but I was like, I'll save it for the podcast. And some of these stemmed off of interactions off of Final Surge and text. So we're going to go Alex Hormozy style for those who know who that is. I'm going to give you six points, and I just want you to elaborate and answer each point. So Alex, my first point for you is how to not overthink pain, but also how to be rational about what your body is telling you. Right. That's the, that's the ultimate question, striking the balance between those two things. I think taking kind of a broader perspective, when something hurts, 
you kind of, like you said, you kind of get pretty down bad, but you need to realize you need to be able to zoom out a little bit and remember that like nothing too good or too bad stays that way forever. Right? Like it's really easy to get up in these negative thought spirals and these loops, um, these endless loops. But you know, one of the biggest uh, ways to combat that is just steadiness and emotional control, right? Like never get too high, never get too low, right? Like a sunny day always follows a storm type mentality. And, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier in one of our podcasts, but this quote really has resonated with me, which is that, you know, Dwight Eisenhower said, the definition of a military genius is the person who can do the average thing when everybody else around them is losing their mind, right? So when you get thrust into this, like really, you know, tumultuous situation, you're hurt, like your emotions are running wild. Can you just bring it back? Can you ground yourself in the present moment and be like, can I just be steady? Can I not get too high or too low? And can I evaluate this situation objectively? Right. Um, I, I think that's that's really important. I think it's also important to know just like the characteristics of how how pain progress. And, you know, we, we always want the timeline to move faster and we always want our symptoms to progress in a linear fashion. But as with anything, like the, the improvement process and the healing process is punctuated by, you know, periods where things get better really quickly and then they plateau for a while. And it's just important to remember that just because you might be on a plateau and, you know, let's say you're, you're dealing with an injury that's probably going to take somewhere between four and six weeks and two days in a row have felt the same. That's like totally normal, you know, on a cellular level, if you're recovering from a stress fracture, you know, the, you have something called, you know, osteoclasts that break down bone and then osteoblasts that build them back up again. That turnover process can take weeks. And so, you know, we have to remember that like, you know, our bones and our muscles, like they don't, they don't have emotions. They're not conspiring against us, right? They're just doing what they're supposed to do. And we give them the inputs they're supposed to have. And then they help, you know, they help you heal. And that does take time. Um, and the last thing I'll say too is that, you know, it's very important to view pain as a signal and not something that hijacks your thought process. Um, it's almost like if you're driving in a car, it's like the check engine light, right? Like you're driving along and the check engine light comes on. It's like, oh, okay. Like this is something that's not maybe imminently indicative of a disaster or impending doom, but rather it's, it's something that like, yeah, it should be dealt with. I should bring it into the mechanic and get it checked out. Very similar, like an injury, like it's 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 very rare that like at the first sign of pain, you're doomed, right? And and you're going to go down this, you, you know, you're going to do catastrophic damage to your body. But it's something that it's just a good check in point to say, hey, am I really taking my recovery seriously? Is there somebody, you know, I can I can consult with who's a professional who can help me out with this? I think that's really important. If, if you view it as a signal rather than something that's like viscerally really emotional and you, you kind of treat pain as this like taboo topic that you aren't willing to bring up. I think it's much easier to actually go about dealing with it in a rational way. In relation to the point you just elaborated on, how important do you think perspective is with all of that? <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's everything. I think we need to differentiate here between the fact that injuries they they suck, right? There's just like there's no two ways around that. They're incredibly difficult to deal with. When you're a runner, that's like the last thing that you want it that that you want to happen. But also we need to remember that like, you know. We have to take it all in perspective, right? Like if, if everyone in the world were to throw their problems into a pile, like people would take, you know, a, a mild injury over probably anything else, right? Like what you're dealing with is, is very difficult. And I don't want to like invalidate that because those feelings are very real and they're very difficult, but also it's like, I'm able-bodied, like I will recover from this, you know, almost always 99% of the time. 
And so what I'm dealing with, like, it's not a cancer diagnosis, you know, and I, I think personally, like, and we could talk about this later with kind of diversifying your sense of self, like, I very intentionally sought out, you know, different um, uh, interests and different kind of avenues in life to explore who I am outside of the sport. And one of those things I happened to do is, I, you know, I worked in a hospital for, for two years and I worked as an EMT in high school prior to that. And it was very clarifying whenever I was dealing with an injury to, you know, and I was feeling down about everything. And then I'd go into the hospital and you'd, you'd see people on the, wor the worst day of their lives dealing with life-threatening injuries. And you'd see all the suffering that came of that. And I said, you know what, like at the end of the day, this isn't that bad. Like I will live to see tomorrow. I will get through this. And I think that perspective for me was really healthy. You want know, to share the quote that you shared uh, many, many podcasts ago about a healthy man, the perspective, you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, 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 I do. Um, this is something that I quoted on my, my grad school essay. I believe it's something that Confucius said. Um, he said that a, um, uh, a healthy man wants a thousand things, but a sick man only wants one thing, and that's his health back. Right. And so it, it kind of touches on this point, which is, um, you know, we have this fallacy or this delusion in life that there's a version of of our being where there's no problems and there's no anxiety. Right. It's like you're going to level up and then one day, you know, you get to a certain objective and then all of your problems disappear. But the reality is that 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 day will never come. You know, even if you had never gotten hurt and dealt with this setback, I can guarantee there would be something on the top of your mind that would be bothering you. It really is like you just trade in one problem for another. In relation to something you were talking about there in terms of perspective and whatnot, uh, I was thinking about this earlier today with my injury. If I was completely healthy and we nailed all the workouts that you prescribed on Final Surge up until this point, I guarantee you I would find something to quote unquote complain about in my head, whether it's like, you know, that workout could have been faster or I wish I would have done a longer long run at this point. Or I think no matter what, humans are always searching for more and for more validation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's never been a single race in my career that I stood on the starting line feeling like I did every single thing possible because that's literally impossible, but yet we feel like we need to train for that. And so it's kind of a reminder for me right now of like, this could be worse. Uh, and even if it was totally normal, you'd also probably have the mindset that, okay, something could be better. And I just think it's kind of a funny mindset trap that most humans get into. So, so I totally agree. I think it's like, it's absolutely false that there's a version of life where like, you're going to graduate from all of your problems and anxieties. There's always going to be that lingering doubt. And unfortunately, like the default setting in our brain is not always self-serving, right? There's a reason why we have these anxieties. Like the way that we evolved as human beings is that, you know, out on the savannah thousands and thousands of years ago, early in our human evolution, like the person who was not stressed about anything was probably going to get eaten by a predator. But the person who was paranoid and a little bit anxious and always on edge was the person that was going to be able to find cover. Um, they were going to be able to like, you know, avoid problems. So the brain is a prediction machine. And like we were very acutely aware of anything that might be a little bit out of whack and anything that might be slightly unsafe, whether that's psychologically or physically. And so, you know, there's always going to be another problem that's looming at the top of your mind. And it's, it's just not worthwhile to wish for a life without problems. It's instead just way better to, to wish for peace and acceptance and realize that there's no path to take in life that doesn't involve some form of suffering. 
Next point here is something that I got from a text you sent me and you said, quote, I guarantee you'll feel better once you can actually make any kind of meaningful progress on your goal, no matter how small the steps are. Waiting around in limbo for your body to heal is the worst, speaking from personal experience. That's what gave me this idea for you to elaborate on, kind of the limbo phase is what I would call it after that text. Can you elaborate on that text and just the concept and idea of the limbo phase and how to get through it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, being in the stage where you know you have an injury, but you haven't yet established any sense of what the timeline is going to be is the absolute worst because you have no actionable next step. And that's something we even talked about on the next podcast, right? Like action almost always relieves anxiety, right? It's hard to fear a problem when you feel like you can break it down and make progress on it, even if that progress isn't, isn't perfect. Right. And, and maybe it's, it's really, really slow. Um, but yeah, the, the limbo phase is just particularly difficult because um, you, you don't have all the answers to your questions, even though you want them so badly, right? And and I think one thing that's important to remember here, um, and let's just say you know you're you're dealing with an injury and you don't have a formal diagnosis yet, like the timeline is the timeline, right? You have minimal control over the timeline, your body controls it, and you have to surrender to that, right? We have this perception that we want to be like high agency in the world, right? That we can dictate our outcomes through our actions, but you know, with injuries, like just having like mental peace, like just having peace of mind um, is going to help you heal way faster than stressing about it. And as much as you want, just like some omniscient narrator to come in and tell you exactly how long an injury is going to take and exactly how long this difficult chapter of your life is going to unfold, that will never actually happen. Right. And instead of kind of using this backwards facing timeline of I have to race on this day, will I be ready? Just realize that the only timeline that actually matters is the forward-facing one, which is here I am today, here is how I feel, and based on that, here's what I can do tomorrow, right? So surrender to that outcome and live within the boundaries of today because your anxieties and your worries and your neur- your neuroses are, are not going to make this timeline go any faster. In fact, it's probably only going to slow it down, right? And there's a great quote, which I'll cap this thought off with, which is, uh, Worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but you never get anywhere. <laughs> oh, I love that. I've never heard that one. I'll have to add that to my list of quotes. One of probably this is probably the point that I'm most excited to to hear your thoughts on because I know you've prepared some interesting ones regarding it. Fitness. So let's go into the science. And when I say let's, I mean you because I don't know the science. So let me learn from uh, your understanding of the science of how fitness is built, how long it takes to lose it. Uh, and how long it takes to lose it, because I think that question gets talked about quite a bit, but I feel like very few people have answers to it, or at least most people don't do hours of research like you have. <laughs> right, right. So there's a, I guess I mentioned, I kind of framed this discussion earlier by talking about the, the two different sides to, um, you know, how, how you actually lose fitness. You lose, you know, the aerobic and, and the metabolic adaptations in your body. And then you also kind of lose some of those structural adaptations in your body, both of which are really important, especially for, for you know, a marathon. Um, so when we first look at like kind of the, the aerobic and metabolic side of things, um, you know, when you're really, really fit, your, your heart is an extremely good pump, right? It can pump blood really fast, really effectively, and it can move all like very, very large volumes of blood all around your body to your working muscles where, you know, it can exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide, and then you can exhale that. And, you know, that's what determines your VO2 max. So um, when you stop exercising and you stop working your heart, um, you, you very slowly start to lose those adaptations. They start to erode. And then the other side of this, which also factors into, you know, what, what your VO2 max is, is kind of all the enzymes that happen in these metabolic processes in your body. So, um, 
I, I'm sure if anyone here is taking high school biology, um, they're probably going to hate that I'm going to bring this up. But you have uh, you have your glycolysis and you have your citric acid cycle and then you have your electron transport chain. And the, the things that make all these processes work are, are these aerobic enzymes. Right. And um, they're really, really important of carrying like high energy carriers like through the cell um, and helping you basically produce um, ATP, which is cellular energy from oxygen. And the longer you go without exercising, the, the concentration of those aerobic enzymes does start to diminish. And so, but what does this like meaningfully translate into? Um, and there actually isn't that much research out there on it. I kind of did a deep dive yesterday. Um, but the first kind of important landmark that most of the research points towards is that if you were to take two weeks completely off, basically just go on to bed rest, um, your, your VO2 max would drop by about 6%. Uh, which is which is something that's relatively significant. Um, I, I kind of was doing some back of the envelope calculations right now based on your your 5k PR. And I'd say like conservatively, I'd say your VO2 max is probably around 60. Um, so if we were to cut that by 6%, um, you would move uh, from like having a marathon potential in the 240s, low 240s probably. Um, and that would drop to, to a 253. So maybe you're losing like 10 minutes off your marathon PR. Now, if you do a little bit of cross training, it's it's fairly likely, in my opinion, based on the research, that you can probably cut the losses in half. So maybe instead of a six percent decline in two weeks, you have a three percent decline, which would probably put you at like two forty eight marathon shape, um, give or take. Now, again, these are very rough estimates. There was a really interesting study that actually was done in elite kayakers, um, and they I were didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> oh yeah, it is it is a thing, and I, like like I said, there's not a lot of evidence out there, but this is what I did find. So I really I really dug pretty deep because <laughs> you know I'm going to look for the running studies first, but there weren't many. Uh, and so they were looking at kind of their um, a lot of different variables uh, in their performance metrics uh, leading into a peak race, and they looked at a taper, and then they looked at the five week period after the actual the, the actual goal race. Um, and they had one group, uh, which for a period of five weeks did absolutely nothing. And then they had another group, which for a period of five weeks cut their training volumes about a quarter of what it normally was. So let's just say for, you know, all intents and purposes and for this audience, like if you normally run 40 miles per week, the activity reduction group, they cut that to about an equivalent of, of 10 miles per week, right? So way less than usual, but still just enough to kind of maintain the stimulus. In the group that did absolutely nothing, over a period of five weeks, their VO2 max dropped by 11%. And in the training, in, in the group that did reduced training volume, right, the 10 miles a week instead of 40 miles a week, their losses were cut in half. They only had a 5% decrease. So what that tells me is like, it's pretty remarkable how, what a small dose you need to maintain adaptations without them completely falling off of a cliff. And the same thing goes for strength too, which is like how your muscles respond, right? So with absolutely no training, you kind of lose eight to 9% of, um, uh, of your, your peak strength. But with only one resistance training session per week, you only see a 4% drop. So all of these things, basically, you can cut your losses in half just by doing basically no more than a maintenance stimulus, which I think is really important. And it, it's, it teaches us here that like you have to trust in this situation where we're dealing with some adversity and we know we have to take time off. You have to trust the innate aerobic capacity that you've got um, because it, it gives you the potential. Your heart and lungs have the potential to still do a sub three hour marathon. The biggest thing that we need to focus on now is the structural adaptations and make sure that like you can withstand the load that comes with a training block in the marathon because that does drop off as well. It's, it's not easy to quantify, but that's why we're trying to do like just a little bit of the minimally effective dose of a loading stimulus 
without making the pain any worse, just to keep those tissues active and awake. When you talk about that and when I hear about that, uh, my mind immediately goes towards examples of that in practice of people I know. And so for me personally, I actually have a personal experience where I knocked my summer training out of the park going into my junior year. And then actually I got injured in my first race freak accident. I don't really know what happened. All I know is I started the race fine and then I finished and my heel was throbbing. And so I think it was like a stress reaction. I was out for about a month and then I qualified for the state meet, my first ever state meet off of only four weeks of running. And so again, I don't really think I lost too much fitness. I can't say I built fitness in that month off, but I certainly kept the fitness that I had kind of built up over the summer. And then those four weeks were enough for me to continue to build. And I shocked myself in the moment. I really couldn't believe I don't know if you remember those texts, Alex, but I was like, I thought my season was over. I was absolutely shocked. I made it that far. You know, I was like, I'm not getting out of my district, got out of my district. I was like, I'm not making it out of my regional, got out of my regional. And I just surprised myself at every step. And now hearing you say that and also being a little more mature in the sport, looking back, I'm like, oh, it actually kind of makes sense. Like you cross trained somewhat hard and you were still doing some strength training and your summer training went phenomenally. Like it makes sense that you didn't lose a lot of fitness. And then another example I'd love to bring up and maybe you could speak on because you're friends with him, former teammate Grant Fisher. Perfect example. <laughs> Again, I texted you about him. I'm not cross training three hours a day like he supposedly was, but he supposedly had great training all fall, all winter, all spring, and then leading into USA's, I think without misquoting here, hopefully about two weeks leading into USA's. He had a little hiccup. Uh, USA's didn't go great. I think he took about a month off, cross trained, I certainly think he maintained his fitness based on the fact that he ran 7.25 in the 3K. Only a few weeks later, a new American record breaking his previous one of 7.28, which was mind-boggling and also probably the perfect example for me right now of like, oh, okay, <laughs> this isn't too big of a deal. Absolutely. I mean, I think the resounding takeaway here is that you're always capable of more than you think you are. And especially if you came into a training block really, really well prepared, uh, which you did, you've been running for, you know, like I, I know your you know, past two years haven't been like smooth sailing all the time, but you have like pretty good base of fitness going into this. And if you do, your residual fitness will take you quite a long way. And I, I think, yeah, the thing with Grant is you, you got the timeline pretty much perfect there. Um, I, I think it, A, I, we can't generalize Grant Fisher, who's a genetic freak and <laughs> the anomaly of all anomalies to, uh, the general population. Um, he's, he's special for a reason. Um, not, not too many people can do what he does, but it also does remind us that like, yes, if you maintain the training stimulus and, you know, one thing that we have to consider too, is that, you know, he had a very, very high risk tolerance, right? Like most people after getting diagnosed with a bone injury are probably not going to try to stage a comeback. Um, but I think he had the mindset and I know this from talking to it's like, Hey, I, I, I would rather take the risk and finish 2023 on a high note going into an Olympic year, even if that means that I, you know, I fail, like I, I will be better off because I tried. Uh, and to him, that was like taking the most aggressive timeline he could possibly imagine. And at like literally like six weeks after a femoral stress reaction was diagnosed, he ran 1254 in the 5k and then followed that up with 725 in the 3k. And I mean, he was doing no long runs. He didn't run any more than 60 miles per week. Um, but he just got, he really calibrated the load pretty perfectly, I would argue. Next point I wanted to talk about is identity. And you can approach this from a more vague perspective because identity, I think, is important to talk about even if you're running a new PR every week, maybe even more applicable in that scenario because you think you are on top of the world. 
But also feel free to approach it from the perspective of identity when things aren't going well. Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to bring up a metaphor to frame this discussion. And it's uh, from our um, an author that we both admire a lot. You've had him on the podcast, Brad Stolberg. He just released a new book called Master of Change. And he brought up this excellent metaphor, which we've talked a little bit about, which is that when you think about your identity, you should think about it like a house. And that, um, you know, it's not always a, like if you want to like a nice house, like you won't, don't just want to live in one room, right? You want to diversify what you've got in that house. So, you know, you have your kitchen, you've got your living room, you've got your office. And in a very similar way, I think if you were to think about your identity, you want to diversify your identity such that you're not just living in that running room all the time. And it's really important to say here that like this is something that typically has to be built proactively because like if you're dealing with an injury and that running room is like being flooded right now, like it's really hard to just like scramble and like build a kitchen on a moment's notice, right? And so th the point here is that like, I think a lot of people have this mentality of, I wanna go all in, I'll do whatever it takes. I will sacrifice this at the expense of everything else. But I think rather than like promise success, that more often than not makes us very fragile because if one of those things breaks, then all of a sudden our identity becomes so brittle and like it all collapses, right? Like it has no foundation. And so, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, like, you know, I've um, intentionally sought out opportunities in my life that where I, I'm around a group of people who just don't even know me for what my running accomplishments are, right? Like I worked as a medical scribe at UNC hospital for two years. And like, I doubt that like more than half of them knew that like I ran competitively because for me, it was like really important to tap into those other aspects of my identity that had nothing to do with the sport. Because when your life just becomes the sport itself and only the sport, all these things, which, you know, these injuries, they, they kind of start to feel like life or death because you've wrapped up your identity into your, your entire being, your entire existence. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different metaphors that you can, you can talk about here. It's like, you know, spread your eggs, like don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. And like, I think the cost of spreading your resources rather than being single-minded is more than offset by the benefits of, of diversifying, right? It's the same thing like in investing, like you want a diversified portfolio. This is just kind of one of those ironclad rules of just like the way the world works. So I, I feel pretty safe recommending that. Um, the other thing I'll mention too, is that when you're dealing with something and you're, you know, running is not giving you what it promised it would, um, a lot of people just like start to become an observer to their real life, I guess is what I would say. They start to say like, oh, I'm just going to wait for like life to start again once I can run. And I always <laughs> tell people like, you know, just because you can't run doesn't mean you can't live your life, right? Like don't, don't observe your life, like participate in it, right? Like, and a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to like not do this social thing because I want to stay off my feet and whatever. And it's like, yeah, sure. Like maybe you'd recover like 1% better if you just kicked up and laid back in your room and isolated yourself and watched Netflix. But like, you know, think about the return that you get from just being around friends and laughing and having a good time. And through a lot of my injuries, I just really needed to like operationalize this and, and teach myself this lesson. So I literally just created like a list with two sides. I said, this is productive. This is unproductive. And on the productive side, I was like socializing, laughing, having a good time, like all these like very simple human emotions that are core to who we are and core to just like enjoying who, you know, your experience. And on the other side, I said like, worrying about something that I can't control, like trying to rewrite history, um, like constantly testing the injury, those are all unproductive. And so it's like, now I have a list of things that I should do and a list of things that I should avoid. 
And I think to me that was very clarifying because I needed I needed to remind myself of that. Right. For me, actually, over the weekend, it was literally the perfect setup where I'm going through this tough thing. It seems like the most serious thing we've gone through thus far, maybe a little more than a hiccup I would deem it as. And guess what? Like, no matter how much you care about running, you're not thinking about your injury while your brother's getting married and a full day of activities. And, you know, it was, it was awesome to just be able to, like, fully forget about it. Um, and also to any time it would come up in my mind, just like, oh, the, don't even give thought to it. Right. This is like the least important thing in the world. So that was awesome for me to kind of experience. And I got lucky in that sense. And then another thing that popped up into my head, as you know, Alex, and as listeners know in this podcast, because I've done this once in this episode thus far, I'm a very example based guy. I like to break down your very fancy concepts as much as I love them to examples that I can pull from. And, um, one of the big ones, Brad writes about a few in the book of people dealing with identity change and how you know they manage that. One thing, uh, bringing up this guy again, Grant Fisher, correct me if I'm wrong here, didn't he literally like enroll in some fancy school program at Stanford like the year he popped off and running? So yeah, you're correct. So the, the winter where he ran uh, 12.53 in the 5K, broke the American record indoors, he was actually enrolled in... Um, in a co-term program or that he that he had initially gotten accepted into like after his senior year at Stanford um, but decided to put it on hold he just said you know what like I'm not going to do this like when I'm at the Olympics but it's it's like winter training right now like it's it's, it's base training I have time and so yeah he's he was chipping away at his degree um as he was running American records and I think that's awesome I think it's so empowering like I, you know there's, there's this like conventional model of what professional distance running is supposed to look like and I just love seeing these alternative examples of like, I mean, another one's Kira D'Amato, like who was the former American record holder in the marathon. She ran collegiately and she couldn't run, you know, pro or anything. And she started working in real estate, I believe started having a family. And then uh, when she started running really well again, um, she went from like 315 in the marathon to 245 to all of a sudden running like 219. She said when she was like talking with her agents and negotiating a contract, like, I don't want the previous life that I had built up and this other identity to go away. Like I still want to work in real estate. I still want to like, obviously be an important member of my family. And I think she didn't see that as something that would impede her success, but rather it would, it would enhance her potential success. Yeah. My point in bringing up Grant was that I think identity only gets brought up when things aren't going well. And I think it's because when things aren't get going well, your identity gets brought to light, right? Because then you're, you know, a hot mess. But the reason I'm bringing up Grant is that it's something the listener, hopefully you guys listening are in a good spot, not going through an injury. You're crushing your cross country season, road racing season. Like it's something to focus on even when things are going well. And I think it's actually right. something that will elevate your running as displayed by Grant Fisher. Okay. Next point here, doubts. How do we handle doubts, Alex? <laughs> so I, I think we already addressed this a little bit by saying earlier that like the default way that your brain operates is not always, not always self-serving, like I mentioned, right? Like even if you know, you'd never gotten hurt, there would still be some doubt or some anxiety that was plaguing your mind, as it always would be. Um, I think sometimes the way I deal with this, and this is very personalized, but sometimes I just need to laugh at that. And I'll just be like, it's so stupid the way that our brains are hardwired. And like, instead of just like listening to myself, why don't I talk to myself? Like, wh why don't I actually like evaluate these beliefs that I have and like interrogate them a little bit and be like, where am I pulling this evidence from? Um, I, just to bring up a few examples from psychology, which I think everyone will appreciate, there's this thing called the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry, which is that we pay far more attention to our barriers, which I guess would be called our headwinds, than our blessings, which are our tailwinds, right? So like, 
a good example is like when you're driving along and you, you have a string of intersections coming up, you might feel like a tiny bit of joy if you catch a string of green lights. Um, but you get just like disproportionately and irrationally angry when the car in front of you sits at a green light and you miss the chance to get through the intersection. <laughs> so like negative events by their very nature are just always going to take up more storage space in our in our mental bank. And like when we're winning, we don't think we're due for a change in the least. And like, you know, we're, we're thrilled to let that run of, of good events continue indefinitely. But, you know when when you know when we're you know going through bad streaks like we think that they're overdue they should have ended yesterday and like of course no one wants the good things to end but it's just the way that our brains are hardwired another one is another good way to think about this is that um progress happens too slowly to notice but setbacks happen too quickly to ignore and i just think it's important to remember that like we have this negativity bias um you know we're always going to associate more with the negative things that are going on but it's also just like maybe we can also pull for some positive evidence. So, for instance, you know, you ran a 60 mile long run like you were in one of the best shapes, you, you know, arguably some of the best shape of your life at the time. Um, and, you know, you're riding that high and feeling really confident. And then, you know, four days later, when objectively, physiologically, you're no less fit, you had this setback. And all of a sudden, the projection of what could be in the future just sends you down this negative spiral. And it's like, well, you're, you're kind of still the same guy. Like you're not that far removed from who you were four days earlier, but like the evidence that you're associating with is, is, is totally different. Um, and then the last thing I'll say on this point is that um, even our heroes, even, even the best guys to ever do it, the, be the best men and women to ever do it, like they, they experienced doubts. And I know this because I've been around them, um, you know, like trying and failing looks a lot like incompetence right up until the moment it's actually defined as success and all we see is like who everybody is you know after they become good after they experience success um but like we hardly ever see who they were leading up to that and it's very likely that like that journey beforehand was tumultuous it was rocky there were trials and tribulations right and like even someone who's like has has experienced colossal success had you know, they, they failed beforehand. And like, we just, we don't think about that. People don't talk about it. I've, I've found personally that people are a lot more willing to speak about their failures after they've experienced success. Um, and I think one of the biggest things, one of the most vulnerable and courageous things you can do is talk about something that's difficult in the moment that you're experiencing it, when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, that really takes some courage, not waiting to share your you know, your, your, your sorrows and your, your difficulties until you, after you've experienced success and you know that you're safe, you know? So I think that's a big difference. Good to hear you say that. I feel good that we talked about my injury now. I'm not sure if you were setting that up to make me look like a good guy, but I could have just faked it. I could have been like, you know, Alex wrote some spicy workouts on final surge this week. I nailed every single one. And then after the fact, I run a sub three and I go, guys, I was lying to you. I actually took two weeks off, <laughs> but anyways, okay, Alex, final matter of business, final point how to build momentum in ways that don't directly relate to the training itself. Yes. So I think the way that we view progress is um, pretty like one dimensional in, in the sport. Like our definition of success typically is on a week to week basis, a month to month basis. Am I able to run this pace faster? Am I able to run it while it feels easier? Uh, and we get so caught up in all those metrics. And of course it's enabled by all the technology that we have. We can track literally every little thing on your GPS watch. And then all of a sudden running gets taken away from you and you're just like, wait, like, how am I supposed to measure success? How am I supposed to measure my worth and my progress? Um, and so it, it really does become a challenge. And I think 
anyone out there right now who's, who's struggling with something and they, they can't run as much as they'd like to, um, I would encourage you to find an activity outside of running where you can objectively make progress. And here's the secret. It's probably going to be a lot easier because if you've been doing the sport for a long time, you're kind of operating on the, the so-called flat of the curve. Like every additional unit of effort that you put in gives you like lesser and lesser results as you go. That's the definition of diminishing returns. But if you can approach something with the beginner's mind and be like, hey, I'm going to hop in the pool and I'm going to see how much like right now I'm dealing with a, a, a bit of a foot injury and I've been swimming every morning. And it's just been so um, it's been so captivating to just be like, yes, I feel like I'm a runner, but I also am an athlete. Like I want to define my identity a little bit more broadly. And I just love moving my body. I love the way it makes me feel. Um, and I love just, I love seeing progress no matter what that is. So I've been seeing every day my my, uh, you know, time per hundred yards ticking down ever so slightly. Uh, and it's just, it's been so fun, like, uh, to do that, you know? And I, I think one other thing I'll say is, you know, instead of saying what's one way to build your momentum, let's invert it and say, what's one way to kill your momentum. Mm. And I think the easiest way to do that is to play the comparison game, right? Either a envision a scenario that, you know, is, is not happening, right? Like what could have been, what could have happened if this never uh, if this injury never derailed me, that's just, you're just going to torment yourself, right? Just you, like I said, you, you just need to view your current reality as inescapable. It is what it is. And you need to move away from bargaining with some higher power or trying to rewrite history and just say, I'm in a situation that's inescapable. I'm not going to change it. I'm going to start moving from identifying problems to creating solutions. And that's a big part of it. So yeah, don't play the comparison game with yourself or with other people. You know, I, I personally would, you know, take Strava off your phone or whatever other social media app you've got to see, because all you're doing when you're compulsively checking Strava is ripping the bandaid off every time and making yourself feeling like you're missing out on something that you can't do. Um, so, so anyway, those are probably would be my pieces of, uh, of tactical advice. Remember the fun part of progress, define it more broadly, and then don't play the comparison game. Alex, one final thought for you. We didn't speak on an intention for this week, which is my bad, but I've kind of had an intention in the forefront of my mind. And I actually think I, I put it as one of the comments on one of my bike rides on final search. I'm not sure who it came from. I feel like it's just been a, a lifelong phrase and it's simply keep the faith. And so for me right now, let's just keep the faith that things will work out in the end. Going back to last episode, I believe, the Stocksdale paradox, um, I think that's very apropos for my situation right now. And yeah, I mean, things might not work out, but let's approach this from the perspective of keeping the faith, hopefully keeping as much fitness as I can and uh, having a positive attitude and viewing this challenge as an opportunity, an opportunity to still hopefully execute the plan and more importantly, um, execute what I can do in the present moment, control the controllables. So keeping the faith until next week, Alex, it's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And I will say that like, you know, I'm proud of you, man. Like we're, we're going through something that's definitely difficult. Like the listeners are seeing this unfold in real time. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. But, you know, if I were to, you know, just submit my intention for the week, it's just like, you know, all you can do is all you can do, right? Like, like I, I texted you yesterday, like, I'll give you the best knowledge that I've got. I know you'll give the best effort that you've got each step along the way. We can't predict the future. We can't promise any outcomes. But whatever the result, wherever we end up in four, four weeks time, we'll know that we did the best that we could. And that's all we can ask for. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I don't take your time for granted, so I hope that it brought you some wisdom and value that you can apply directly into your running and into your life. If you have not already done so, please consider giving us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then something all of you guys can do is share today's episode or the podcast in general with a friend or someone who you think will benefit from it. One more note, if you're not already following us on Instagram, consider doing so. My Instagram tag is at The Running Effect. I hope you're running and life is going well. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to listen to today's episode. I will catch you in two days when the next episode drops. Until then, happy running.